Okay, uh, I do not have a cheat sheet for you tonight. I will have one for you next week. And uh, sometimes you will hear a pastor joke. In fact, I think my grandfather even used the joke when he was here back in January uh, that, you know, people would come up to him and say, oh, pastor, we're excited to hear the sermon today. And he would say, well, I am too. It'll be fun to see what comes out of my mouth. Uh, that is really true for tonight. Uh, I forget, uh, I say forget, uh, when we come to the issue of biology, it is a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole because there's a lot of different things we could cover, uh, and it's obviously probably of uh, most probably for us as Americans, in the last 100 to 150 years of the 10 categories of, uh, that, that we break up a worldview into, theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, government, history, economics, those 10 categories, probably for us in our context historically, the one that produces the most vitriol and venom and arguments one way or this way or that is probably the category of biology. And so when I say it's a deep rabbit hole that you can go a lot of different directions, yeah, because biology covers all of, I mean, what is biology? It's the study of life. There's a lot of life in our universe. So uh, we're, we're going to, and so all to say, and in, and in preparing, um, this week, uh, staff and I spent some time on kind of a mini, uh, mini staff retreat, working through some things, uh, praying through some things, working through some things for the next uh, year and a half, making sure we've got right dates and this and that and the other. So it's been a little bit of a different week from a preparation standpoint. So as I came earlier today and began to work through stuff for tonight, what I mean by some of the worldview textbooks I use that I'll prepare and kind of pull stuff from and, and, and make sure that I've got a, a good outline and things go in a totally different direction in terms of uh, how we've been doing this worldview stuff. They instantly went into the direction of one of the ways you can tackle this question, which is very much the apologetics, let's point out all the failures of the opposing views, which we'll, we'll do that in summary, but but I really would rather, if we're going to start with what is a biblical worldview, I would rather us just start with, let's open our Bibles and see what it says. So it's not that those books are, the books are great. It just threw me for a loop because it took a different pathway. So then when you try to come and say, well, what all does our Bible say about origin and life and this and that? Well, oh my goodness, how far do you want to go down with what all the Bible says? So we're going to do our best to cover uh, what we can cover tonight. As we've been doing the last few weeks, when I see that clock hit 55, we're going to stop. But um, here's, we're going to start somewhere a little different. I want you, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans 5. Now, 
In the book of Romans, uh, Paul, Paul makes the statement in chapter one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. For the gospel message, that is Jesus's life, death, resurrection, the fact that he came, he lived the life that we have fallen short of. Uh, as, as a man, as a representative, he represented, he took our place on the cross, received the full divine eternal wrath of God that our sin rightfully deserves, which we would use the term hell to, to refer to in, in one sense. He died, he rose from the grave on the third day, and you and I can be forgiven and restored to a relationship. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, it's the power. It's what has the ability to actually save us. For the gospel message is the power of God for salvation to those who faith, who will rest the fullness of their being upon the, the truth of the gospel message, both Jew and Gentile, meaning any created person. He starts off and then he proceeds in the book of Romans to really begin to unpack what is this gospel message and, and to essentially offer a defense. So I, I give you that background to say what the basic context we need to understand as we come to, to Romans 5 is Paul is talking about the entire crux of everything we believe about how to be saved from sin and be in a relationship with God and, and all the ramifications that that has for our life. But look what he says with me. And of course, obviously in chapter five, um, you know, you got the, uh, uh, realize I'm, I'm probably maybe the only one who did Awanas in the room, but if you've been an Awanas listener, you know, or if your grandkids or kids are in Awanas, you know, this is a verse, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's a pivotal verse of our faith, part of the Romans road, if you've used that. So I give you all that to say, look now with me at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. And then drop down with me. Uh, well, no, look at verse 15. Well, hang on, actually, let me stop. Catch what he just says. He says, one man, one human being, through one human being, sin, the problem, entered the world. And when sin entered into the world, something else came behind it, death. And because sin entered the world and brought death into the world, it's like a train joined, joined one you know, locomotive in the caboose. Sin comes driving in, brings death with it. Death spread to every human being because every human being is guilty of sin. And then in the, in the reality of this, he says, is even before there was the law to say what is sin or what is not sin in a, in a spelled out way, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though not everybody who sinned committed the same exact sin that Adam committed. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the transgression, for if the, by the transgression of the one, talking about Adam, Many died, 
Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So all of a sudden, now we have a contrast that just as sin and death came through one man and death abound, so there is another man, Jesus Christ. And then if you uh, verse 17, if the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more to those who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in a life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So th- through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, here's what I want you to see. There's a a bigger point that Paul's making here, but I want you to notice how he is discussing the origin of sin, where death comes from, the consequences of that for all humanity, and how just as through one man, Adam, this started this, so there is a new man, Jesus, who brings about a solution. Now here's, you know, thought we were talking about biology. So what happens if Adam is not a literal, real human being? Everything I just read you falls apart and is a lie. Because if Adam's not a real, literal human being, then how did sin actually enter into the picture? And you go, well, it could have come another Okay, well, if you say it's going to come another way, then God lied to us when he wrote it because he said it came through one man. Well, but maybe Adam's not being literal there. Well, is Moses not being literal either? Jesus is contrasted with Adam, so is Jesus not being literal and he's a, he's a metaphor contrasted with a metaphor? All of a sudden, when you come to the issue of biology and origin and ultimately how did we get here? If we all of a sudden take what's prevalent in culture, well, mankind evolved over millions and millions of years through whatever form of of Darwin and macroevolution you want to accept, because there's a couple out there, some of which compete with each other. You ended up at man, and, and and when Scripture speaks of Adam and Eve, it's not speaking of a literal male and female Adam and Eve, it's speaking in what we would call a theological myth or metaphor. Which, by the way, I've just outlined for you uh, multiple Christian groups, what they hold. But that seems to cause problems. It also causes problems with the fact that if you go to Jesus' own words, he seems to talk about Adam just as literal as he talks about Jonah, as he talks about Moses, as he talks about uh, Elijah. So does that make Jesus an absolute lunatic that he is God is talking about something that he knows? Or does it mean that our views of biology, we have to be willing to check everything this world shoves at us at the door and deal with God's word as God's word and then come back and take everything the world gives to us and filter it through the lens of God's word. So I want you to understand the importance of the importance is not just a matter of, there's an obvious importance. Remember, worldview, the first fundamental question of a worldview is how do we get here? How do we get here? Why is that important? Well, because our purpose goes back to how we got here. Our value goes back to how we got here. Our, uh, 
Our identity goes back to how we got here. I mean, this is picked up easily in, in literature writings. Think about Frankenstein's monster. He spends the whole book trying to find his creator. Why? Because the only way he can have purpose and identity and value is tied to his creator. But on top of all of that, our salvation is, I mean, the, all these things come back and matter. What does Scripture say about how we got here? So flip with me now to the opposite end of the spectrum, or just close your Bible and open up to page one. This is the only time I can tell you, regardless of your Bible, what page you need to turn to. Some of you, some of one of your Bibles, though, is going to give page one to the preface, and you're going to go, no, not really, Pastor, it's... <clears throat> I say that. My Bible, it's page three. So there you go. I guess page one is the page that says the Old Testament. Well, there you go. So turn to page one, two, or three. Just find the one that says Genesis 1. And let's listen to what it says. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give out light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, let the birds multiply in earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. 
God made the beast of the earth and their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now let's pause there for a second. Here's what we just, if we're picking up, never having read it before, there's things that ought to begin, truths that ought to stand out. One, in the beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning of all reality, the beginning of all creation. In the beginning, God. God created. Now notice that, not in the beginning, God was created. Or in the beginning, first God was created. No, no, no. It says that there was a beginning. There was a beginning of time. There was a beginning of, of what we know as reality. And, and, and in that beginning, God was already there. Which is picked up on when you come to the New Testament and you read the passages that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was face-to-face -face with God, meaning the Word is both God and, and somehow distinct from the person we would call Father in the, in the, of the Godhead. Talks about that in, 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 the, in that John 1 passage, talks about in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, it talks about that, that Jesus was the one who was active in creating, who was, as we just read these things, and God said this, and then it was so, the one who was doing the it was so is Jesus, who was bringing it all about, who was, who was uh, in the brilliance and splendor of his mind, uh, ordering and designing and bringing all these things together. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, we find a personally involved, completely independent from creation, triune God. We know from the New Testament that the Father was speaking. We know Jesus was creating. We hear that the Spirit of God was, was hovering, bringing the life to the creation. We see the triune Godhead that we'll see in a moment says, let us make man in our image and God singular, one being three persons. We see a triune God who is not reflected, his nature is not, as triune is not reflected in a single thing in all of creation because God is completely and totally unique and distinct and separate from all creation. He's the author of it. He's the creator of it. He is there at the beginning. He is before the beginning and he creates. Now that word creates does not necessarily in itself, we, we hold the belief that God created out of nothing. Now, that word create does not necessarily in its uh, whatever the Hebrew version of Webster's Dictionary is. It is such a thing. It's a very big book. And I'm grateful for computer software that helps me search it quickly. But that word does not necessarily mean in and of itself out of nothing. It's the context that helps us understand that the kind of creating God was doing was a creating out of nothing. There was nothing there to create with. And this is, this is huge. Now, I'm not going to spend um, tons of time in, on this tonight. It's something we'll... Let me just come back up. At some point in the next year, we're going to come and have fun and do a real in-depth series on just origins and all the different rabbit holes that come with it. But I need a little bit more time to study sufficient to my conviction uh, on, on some of those things that I'm not as already proficient in, like a lot of the, the various scientific argument and, and, and data and things like that. 
um, and, and as well as all the different ramifications. But one of the things that's interesting, uh, and you should, let's see, trivia question, let's see how well we, we did walk in the Old Testament. Who wrote Genesis? Yes, God. God's the author of all Scripture. What human did God use to write Genesis? Moses. Okay. Moses is writing. When is he writing? Well, obviously, sometime after he brings the Israelites out of Israel, sometime before God it takes him and ends his life on Mount Nebo. So you got about a 40-year period. Somewhere in there, Moses writes this. I say that to say, so he is writing, uh, as God is revealing, and he is writing. He's not writing in a vacuum where there aren't other cultures who already have their own creation stories. And what's interesting is some of the things that are implied that you and I would not as readily pick up here in the creation narrative are by, are by no means inspired by as if Moses went, oh, the Babylonians think this, that's great, I'll use that. It's not inspired by, but it is directly rejecting. Because a lot of the ancient Near East believed that their gods had existed, but had always existed with matter. So matter and God coexist. He didn't say matter and God coexist. He said God made the matter. It's a complete and total rejection. Not only that, but he says matter is distinct from God. That's a rejection of what we call pantheism, where all things, you know, are, are God. This, this table is God because God is in all things, and your fingernail is God because God is in all things. That's pantheism. Both of those are rejected in the way that, that God inspired Moses to write the creation narrative, to make it clear. In the beginning, you see a preexistent personally involved, and don't miss that. Let's go back to last year. We did a series on, on who is God, and we talked about the Trinity and the fact that in the Trinity, you have one God, one being. There's not multiple gods. We don't battle multiple gods. There's one God. But inside the triune Godhead, there are three unique. unique. They're distinct. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father, and vice versa on the ones I didn't call out. They're all co-eternal. They're all co-equal. They're all God. But they're unique and distinct from each other. What are they doing for for what we, the only term we have is to say eternity past, which is a total misnomer, right? Because in, etern, in true eternal existence, there's no past or future, just present, always. Which is, how does God reveal himself? Not I was, not I will be, I am. But what are they doing? Well, and we walked through, I'll, I'll, we don't have time for me to give the whole, the whole spiel going back, but what ultimately what we know is we know that the Father has been eternally loving the Son who receives the love and joy, who eternally loves the Father, the Spirit providing the fellowship in the midst. There is this loving, and it's out of this good loving, this goodness and loving of God. And remember, God's love is the eternal giving of Himself. Out of this overflow of God's love, God's love, it delights the Godhead to create the world. And do you see His involvement in it? This does not present a God who goes, you know what? It's kind of, it's kind of boring, just, 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 just us. Listen, if God was bored, then he lacked something and is no longer God. God didn't go, you know what? We, we, we need, I've got an idea for a brilliant reality television program called The Human Existence. No. I just, I just am itchy, I'm just... 
God didn't create because he lacked anything. God created because out of his sheer goodness, it delighted him to create an entire universe, both seen and unseen. Remember that? We haven't even gotten to that point yet. Goodness gracious, and we only got 20 more minutes. It delighted God. And do you see as we read through that? God's not just callously throwing stuff. Ah, maybe we should do something. There's going to be light. I'm going to separate the light from the darkness. There's going to be water. I'm going to separate the expanse. There's going to be dry land. And and on this dry land, there's going to be vegetation. And it's it's certainly using, um, certainly we could come back and go, man, if we were watching all of that happen, you know, we'd probably pick up a whole lot more details. But do you catch, he's, he's personally involved. And do you also catch that he's not just personally involved doing it, but he's delighting in it, and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. It was good. I mean, this is all huge. This means God, when he looks at all creation, it's not a burden to put up with. It's not something that he's, it is something that was an overflow of love on his heart that he created, that he delights in, that he has a, a very vested interest in, interest in. And he, and you, you walk through this and he creates, what does he create? By the way, that word creates, this is one of the unique things about that word creates. That word creates in the Old Testament, bara, it is only, the only time it is, uh, the it is only ever used with God as its subject. God is the only one who borrows. It's never used with a human agent as the subject. There's a lot of stuff we can create, right? I can create a PowerPoint. But me creating a PowerPoint is not as the same as, as I don't borrow a PowerPoint. It's a different Hebrew word. This word implies God's effortlessness. He's totally free, his unbound creating, his absolute sovereignty. And it's interesting because it's used elsewhere to speak of what he does to act in saving people, which implies here that God's not just creator, but he is also redeemer and sustainer, recreator, completer of his work. What did he create? The heavens and the earth. And we looked at this in the category of philosophy. Heavens and earth doesn't just mean God created our, you know, uh, the terrestrial ball of matter that we stand on, and he created space. Heaven and earth. We know from uh, Colossians 1, it says that Jesus created all things visible, invisible. That there is a physical universe, there is a spiritual universe. There is a, or you may use term, there is a natural universe, there is a supernatural universe. Right now, we all live, move, breathe, dwell in the physical universe. Every person who's died, who's been separated from their body, lives, moves, and breathes in the spiritual universe, either in heaven with the Lord if they're in Christ, or in the temporary hell if they're apart from Christ. totality. And I'll also remind you too, I won't make a turn there, but Job, when Job first starts talking, I forgot God, in Job, when God first starts talking to Job and he starts asking him, where were you? Don't forget. God created that supernatural universe prior to his creation of the physical universe because it said as he was laying the foundations of the, of the world, the sons of God, that would be the angelic host, were singing for joy. They were in wonder and awe and amazement at what God was doing. We see in here, so we see a 
creation out of nothing by a pre-existent, personally involved, totally independent triune God. We see the creation of the natural and the supernatural. We see a thorough rejection of, of paganism. We see order and purpose. Order and purpose. There's a pattern. At the beginning, it's formless and void. By the end, it's not formless and void anymore. It's not only good, but very good. There's, there's, there's connections. Day one, God separates the light from dark. Day four, God makes the light bearers to rule day and night. Day two, God separates the waters and, and the sky. Day five, God makes birds to fill the sky and sea creatures to fill the water. Day three, God separates the dry earth uh, dry earth from the seas and makes vegetation. Day six, God creates animals to fill that dry earth, to, to eat of that vegetation and help that vegetation spread and reproduce in its own kind. And obviously day six, God creates us last. We just haven't read it yet. We find that God, there, there's, there's a pattern. We see that God creates things to reproduce in accordance with their own kind, with their own unique Unique meaning, an apple is not an orange and an orange isn't an apple. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of apples. There's gala, there's ambrosia, there's honeycrisp, there's Fuji, there's, yeah, we can come up with a million. The Granny Smith or there's oranges, there's normal oranges, there's blood oranges, there's oranges, but apples aren't oranges. There's a lot of different kinds of birds, but birds aren't dolphins. There are a lot of different kinds of cows, but cows aren't lions. God made an order. He made things unique, distinct from one another, and he made them to reproduce in accordance with their own God-established kind, not to move from one kind to another kind until it got to God's plan. What we see is we see a God who takes the chaos of formlessness and he brings order, he brings design, he brings beauty, he brings goodness because this is what God does. He takes lifelessness and brings life. This is the glory and majesty of who our God is. These are the things that are easy for us to lose sight of if it's just do's and don'ts. We, we follow a great God who, who creates beauty and wonder and, and, and who is creative and intelligent the complexity. This describes in such simplicity things that is so complex, we still don't even comprehend half of it. In our arrogance, we think we understand most of it. And then we come to find new discoveries that cause us to reconsider the things that we said we, we once knew. This is what our God does. Now, irony is sin inverts it. Sin brings evil. Sin brings ugliness. Sin destroys purpose. Sin brings chaos and disorder. But you see order and purpose from God. You see unique and distinct aspects of creation. God makes creatures fully formed, mature, distinct from one another. And then in the midst of all of this, having, having created a world, that let me remind you, in the midst of all of this, having a created a world, it's a horrible time for your pages to stick together. Having created a world, or if the ratio of, of electromagnetic force from gravitational force were different by one in 10 to the 40th power, the entire universe wouldn't exist. Now, I remind you, uh, if you want to go how much is 10 to the 40th power, that'd be taking the entire North American continent, covering every last visible spot with dimes, 
pile those dimes so high that they stretch all the way to the moon. That's 238,000 miles high. Repeat that one billion times. Take one dime, paint it red, and put it in those piles. Blindfold your best friend, and they have to pick it out on the first try. That's the odds of 10 to the 40th power. Not only that, but he, he created a world where, where gravity, the size of the earth, determines its gravity. If it were a smidge larger, methane and ammonia gas would stay close to the surface rather than dissipate. Those gases would not allow life to exist. If it were a little smaller, water vapor would dissipate in the atmosphere, and we who are made up of 75% water could not and would not exist. It's also your public service friendly reminder. Make sure you stay hydrated. Days, if the earth rotated slightly slower, the temperature swings would be too extreme and life would not be able to exist. If we rotated a little more quickly, we'd have shorter days and, and possibly high winds. He gave us lights and he gave us celestial bodies. Jupiter in a perfect spot is the biggest planet in the solar system to keep asteroids and comets that would destroy us. The moon to guide the tides, if it were a tad bigger, the tides would destroy the coast. A tad smaller, the tides would not come far enough. And an irony, even most evolutionists conclude that in their theories, the moon was in existence after the earth. He made a world whereby 22 years ago, scientifically speaking, the number of characteristics for life was 150 unique unique uh, specifications that, that have to be present for life to exist. And the odds of a planet supporting all of those are one in 10 to the 73rd power. That's 33 powers bigger than the example I just gave you with North America. I don't have a visual for you on that. In the known universe, there's only realistically about 10 to the 23rd power number of planets. There aren't even enough planets in our universe for the odds to demonstrate that there would be life. And yet, in the midst of all of this, God intricately and purposefully and uniquely and wondrously designs a universe where life can exist, but not just any life. Look back with me now. Then, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed shall be for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Don't miss what God just said. God said, Let me make, let me make, let me make a being in all of creation that's going to be unique and distinct, not like any of the others that I made. All of the others I made, and, it was, and it's good. I've made animals. I've made insects. I've made stars and planets, 
moons. I've made fruit, trees, plants, but I'm gonna make something different from all of it. I'm gonna make a being that is in my image. I'm gonna make this being, this being's unique and distinct. This being's gonna, not only gonna be unique and distinct, but chapter two will tell us this being's gonna come in one of two, one of two kinds, male, female. Male is not female, female is not male, it's one or the other. And God creates human beings in his image. Now, time doesn't permit to try to go into tonight. That's a whole different walk through scripture. But what does it mean to be in the image of God? And we'll debate something that a lot of times it comes down to what can we do as humans that's different than what animals can do and and really don't understand image of God as far as what we can do. It's not what we can do. It's who we are. It's something foundational about the fact that we are human beings. And I want you to notice God created the image of God, the way the language describes there, God made us in his image. God made us in his image, the totality of our being, flesh and spirit are made in his image, not God made us and then bestowed an image. Now that's critical because if theistic evolution, which says that God's God got everything spinning and he sat back and watched evolution, Darwinian evolution take place. One of the downfalls of that means that we have to evolve from apes like has been postulated, which means our physical being is not made in the image of God. The image of God is something separate from our physical nature that had to be placed on us or in us, which throws all sorts of problems into why did Jesus need to take physical flesh? Why are we given resurrection bodies? Why is there a literal heaven and earth, new heaven and new earth? It throws all sorts of, don't notice that. It's not something that was placed on us or in us, the totality of my being. Now, yes, God does not have in his base nature, flesh and bone like you and I do, but the totality of who we are as human beings, body, soul, spirit is in the image of God is a reflection of God, enables us to relate with God in a way that no other beings in all of creation are able to do. And you can see that just simply by when Jesus steps on the scene. Did you notice? No demon can disobey what he orders them to do. Get out. They're out. Did you notice? The winds and the rain can't fight what he says. Jesus says, be still, boom, still. Did you notice bread and fish can't stay what they are? He can multiply. Nothing in creation can resist when God says, thus saith God, except you and me. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do we do? We eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We are unique as image bearers of God. And as image bearers of God, do you see this? This takes it. All of this, this incredible wonder of all of the universe, do you see what he does with all of it? He comes to those who are in his image and he says, I am giving you dominion. Rule it. Fill it. 
We haven't read far enough and we won't get to tonight, but take what you see in the Garden of Eden that I've made and go take it out from the garden and fill this earth I've given you. Expand, take the ideal of Eden and expand. And, and, and in that way, we are doing just what God does with us. We're reflecting. That dominion is not a vice grip where we care for nothing and we just exploit anything and everything with no care or concern for creation. No, it implies a stewardship. It means we, we can't be diehard oil barons, nor can we be diehard tree huggers. We have to acknowledge that creation's been given us to use for, for purposes. It also means we have to steward it and take care of it. Why? Because how does God rule us? Oh, there's so much that could be unpacked, but any, he makes all of this. He makes image bearers. He makes image bearers in his we're unique and distinct. We're not like the rest of creation. We're uniquely, we'll find out in chapter two, even further, male or female, not both. We're one or the other based on the biology of our physical body. We, we know that we've been given purpose. We're given the purpose of dominion, stewardship, of culture, of multiplication, of family. We're given value. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 will make the statement that if someone in cold-blooded, premeditated murder kills another person, they have forfeited their right to live because they have what? Murdered the image of God is what God says. What gives life value? Why is, why is life sacred? Because human life is in the image of God. No matter what point in existence, conception to final breath, the moment a human begins to be, it is a life in the image of God that is sacred and that has a God-given right to life. It is also, we know from the rest of Scripture, God's, God's intentionality and purpose and, and excitement and delight in creating didn't stop with just the creation of the world in the first six days. We know from the language in Psalm 139, every single baby that is conceived, he takes the same level of plan of intentionality, fearfully and wonderfully made. His hands are in the most small and teeny and tiny of details. what gives us value. And it says, God sees all of that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, here's the reality of what Scripture presents from the very beginning. Scripture presents, Scripture clearly presents this, that there was nothing but God. And into that nothing, a triune God out of the sheer goodness of who He is and to love and delight, to create beings in His image, to receive and know that love and, and enjoy His goodness forever, that in His sheer love and delight, He creates from nothing the visible and the invisible. The invisible first followed by the visible. The angels, none of whom had fallen yet watched him create the visible and sang for sheer joy and wonder at the majesty of what God 
was creating, the sheer genius of his intelligence and creativity. And God created a visible universe filled with order, design. We would call it laws. This is the entire basis, by the way, for real science, is that we as human beings have a rational mind that can observe, hypothesize, experiment on, and study a physical creation that has a rational design. If this isn't the case, if, if it really is all by chance, you really can't advocate for what we know historically as science. God creates the brilliance out of nothing. He does it in an ordered way. He does it within time. Evening, morning, first day, evening, morning, second day, evening, morning, third day, evening, morning, fourth day, evening, morning. He creates mankind in His image, unique and distinct, not evolved. This is what Scripture presents, and it's upon this basis that everything else is built. It's upon this basis that man will fall and sin will break our relationship with God, ourself, each other, and this world. It will not remove God's image, but it will break God's image in us, an image that will need restoring. There was not death, now there will be death. And it's out of this that God promises a Savior who will set things right and who will ultimately make all things new. This is what Scripture presents. Now, I realize there's a lot of questions that come with that, but I told you we're only going so far down the rabbit hole tonight We've ended right on time, so come back next week and we'll go a little further. Uh, we'll go a little further, but today let us just marvel at the sheer brilliance and majesty of a God. I mean, just, just think about this. This is the closing thought for him, something my granddad and I were talking about the other day when they came through. If God puts that level of intentionality and design and delights to do so in the creation of all things. Don't ever for a second think he doesn't put the same level of intentionality and delight and love into having a relationship with you as a son or daughter. And that all of that has not gone into the same level of purposefulness for the purpose he has on your life for His glory, for such a time as this, into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the just unbelievable splendor. God, we, we, we look at things even in this broken world that You say creation is groaning, crying out in agony because of the weight of our sin. Our sin didn't just break us. It broke all of creation. Yet even in this broken world, Lord, there are, there are scenes and sights that just take our breath away at the sheer splendor and wonder and majesty. And there is nothing in this universe that can shake a stick at the splendor and wonder and glory of your majesty. 
those of us in Christ, we have the privilege to call you Abba. May we not degrade what your word says about how we got here. And in doing so, degrade the wonder and sheer glory and splendor of who you are. But may we be encouraged. And Lord, may we love you for who you are. And with joy in our hearts, proclaim the wonder and greatness of who you are to this world. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.